Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. Today, we're digging into a topic that we have touched on several times, but decided we needed to dedicate a full episode to it. We're talking about money, being a good steward, and the way that has uniquely impacted women. We'll look at women in scripture that can inspire our stewardship journeys, including a seemingly hidden gem. Let's dig in. Heather, there's so many cultural barriers and expectations for women as we discuss money, but Jesus certainly was not shy to talk about this topic. In fact, it's one of the things that Jesus talked about the most when he was on the earth. So I'm excited to talk about it today. And you and I have both had different seasons in our money journeys. And um, I think I'm excited to see the ways that our own stories intersect with the stories that we'll be talking about from scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Right. Because for me personally, growing up, I just didn't come from a family that really practiced money management. Um, we practiced faith in the Lord, which was good. Um, and I'm, I'll share more about that. Um, but I, in many ways, consider myself a first generation money manager. And because I kind of had to figure it out as I went along, that has made me very mindful of and passionate about trying to help other young people who might be in the same situation I was in to just have more tools and be equipped and have more confidence and just understanding because some people just grew up around it. And so they just absorbed it and they just know what to do and how to make wise decisions and how to invest. And if you didn't grow up around it, it can be very intimidating and overwhelming and even now I'll still have thoughts of like, am I doing this right? Should I be doing this or that? I don't know. How does one know <laughs> if you're doing it right <laughs> or wrong? Um, and so it just is, can be a daunting topic, uh, but we're not going to get anywhere if we just don't talk about it together. And so this could at least be a helpful start for some people perhaps. Yeah, that's so true. I think at some point in my twenties, I grew up kind of afraid of money, um, just out of a little bit of scarcity. But I think part of that for me just created a real fear about talking about money and an anxiety when the topic came up. And then you and I both got into the kind of ministry that you can't help but talk about money <laughs> as we have raised support at different times. So um, I think in my 20s, when I started to look at a few things about women and see that all the narratives about women and money that we maybe aren't good with money or are like frivolous or aren't good investors. Any of those narratives are, none of them are actually true when you look at statistics. And so when I started to see how false the narrative was, when you compare it with fact, that was actually very inspiring to me, I think. Uh, there's something in me that's kind of competitive. And so when I heard that narrative, it was just kind of like, I'm going to stick it to the patriarchy and get good with money. And so it really inspired me um, to become a good steward. And then the more I really began to dig into scripture and see the ways that Jesus cares so much about that as not necessarily as money in and of itself, but the way that money often reveals our hearts and the way that Jesus tells us 
money is a piece of what it looks like to steward God's kingdom. And it's almost the first thing for him, like, because money is so abundant in God's kingdom, then Jesus talks about it almost being like kindergarten in the kingdom. And so the way that you steward your finances is for Jesus, an illustration of the heart. And so we get to illustrate the way that we trust God, the way that we are um, wanting to be a part of his kingdom. And so I think the more that I started to dig into scriptures like that, the more it made me curious even about what it looked like to continue to be a good steward and see kind of what was on the other side of that in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because for sure, at different times in my life, money has been one of the most sanctifying, one of the greatest tools for sanctification in my life. So for me as a child, I grew up very economically disadvantaged at the time um, and kind of living paycheck to paycheck with my family. And um, for me, what actually was really beautiful about the way God met me in that as a child was it really deepened my faith because I got to see God provide for my family where a check would come in the mail from a family friend at the exact time that we needed it or groceries would just be left on our doorstep from someone in the community. That happened many times, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was really beautiful for me as a kid to have this very formational experience of experiencing want and genuine need and seeing the Lord meet that need. And so feeling seen by God and feeling the provision of God. And I would say, I do think one of my spiritual gifts is faith that I, for whatever reason, just have never really struggled with faith. And that's where I think sometimes it can just be a spiritual gift for some people. And I really credit it to those early experiences of the Lord instilling that in me from a young age. But still, though, money can be a tremendous source of stress. I think it's true for every person. And as you mentioned, Jamie, um, having to support raise our salaries for now coming up on 15 years is an extremely spiritually refining experience. (laughs) And the Lord has used it many times, including recently, to really uncover for me areas of doubt, areas of fear, areas of self-reliance or pride and of really like confronting me with those and then healing those things in me that it's always been an instrument of the Lord bringing me closer to him, the Lord revealing things that I needed to let go of, that I needed to experience mercy in to understand the generosity of God in new ways. And so while money can be so complicated and stressful and everybody has baggage around money. Literally everybody has baggage around money. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your family story completely. There's just going to be something there. And so as a result, it can also be a really powerful area for God to move and for God to teach us. It's so true. I think so much about um, how God has used stories like that like you were mentioning in my own life and um, early on in ministry, seeing the Lord um, really convict me about my lack of trust and the way that that was tied to generosity and that I was, um, you know, basically depending on other people's generosity without necessarily trusting the Lord as I was being generous 
And so have really been stirred um, from some of those early days to just be very committed to the Lord being able to trust that, um, that I would be generous. Um, and also to see that as the Lord's provision consistently. I think the gift for us at different times is really seeing um, everything that we have as the Lord's provision, but there, it, there's times where you just get used to, even though we do support raise, um, there's times where you just get used to that and you don't always see it as the Lord's provision. And so there's, there's good reminders of that. Um, I remember early on when I was very young in ministry, I lived on a, in a third floor, like attic apartment that was not nice. Um, and I was realizing that my heating, like in the middle of winter, my gas bill was not really going up. And I was like, you know what? This might be a not nice apartment, but it is just saving me on these bills. And I really thought that that was it. And eventually the gas company sent someone out multiple times because the gas meter like was not changing. And they finally came and looked at it three different people at different times. And they were like, I don't know what is going on with this gas meter, but nothing is wrong with it. And it is not moving at all. Um, and so I just remember being like, I'm literally heated by the miracle of the Lord. It's like the oil that is not running out. Um, and so I think, I hope that other people can begin to reflect even like, I would encourage you as you're listening to this to just hit pause and think about the way that God has been um, a provider and the ways that maybe you have experienced um, the miraculous in your life. And it feels like telling that story, like, of course, I would never forget that, but I really do, like, because I'm a human. And um, and so there are days where, you know, I don't think about the fact that when I was 22 the lord did not move my gas meter um but i think for us to take time and pause and remember how god has been um a provider is just such a good a good space for us as we think about what it is for us to be a steward because it just reminds us that's what we are we're just um a steward of everything that god has provided mhm that's beautiful i love that encouragement so we started to reference this in the Proverbs 31 episode that the Proverbs 31 woman, she was a baller with her money. She was buying a field. She had businesses. It kind of seems like she was like, had multiple streams of income coming in. She was also building a vineyard. So she was getting another stream of income. She was very shrewd and wise with her money. And so we want to continue to look at who are the women of scripture that we get a picture of them, um, whether it's very clearly the way that they're stewarding their money or by kind of side references that they would be women that we can look to for examples of stewardship. And so I'm really excited to talk about our first um, woman in scripture because I think it I had never realized that she was mentioned for a very long time. And I think um, she is a hidden gem. So we're going to look in First Chronicles. And it, part of the reason she's a hidden gem is because we don't often read Chronicles. So um, if you are unfamiliar with the book, 
it really is a space where the people of Israel are just, it's a chronicle of names for the first like seven or nine chapters actually. Um, and it begins with Adam and then it kind of goes from there and it's chronicling the story of the Israelites and the way that um, God was just faithful. I think part of what we're supposed to get from that is that God was faithful to the promise that he made with his people to make them to be fruitful and multiply. When he gave them that command, he also uh, was faithful to help them do it and then faithful to his promise to his um, people. And he told Abraham that his people would be um, more than the stars in the sky. And so we kind of begin to see that poured out in the story of the generations that we see in Chronicles. So we are going to pick up um, in the middle of a genealogy and we are going to read about the descendants of Ephraim. So um, we'll start there and this will be just a lot of names, but keep your ears out for a special, special name in there. So first Chronicles seven, starting in verse 20, the sons of Ephraim, Shuthalah and Bered, his son, Tahath, his son, Eliad, his son, Tehath, his son, Zabad, his son, Shuthalah, his son, and Ezer and Eliad, whom the men of Gath, who were born in the land, killed because they came down to raid their livestock. And Ephraim, their father, mourned for many days, and his brothers came to comfort him. And Ephraim went into his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Bariah because disaster had befallen his house. His daughter was Shira, who built both lower and upper Beth Haran and Uzen Shira. So the verse ends, uh, and of course, the genealogy goes on for chapters from there. But at the end there, we catch this um, note. So if you didn't catch this, because it's kind of buried almost in there, that Ephraim, he has a very like Job-like experience where all of his kids are taken out, um, but he and his wife survive. And so they uh, grieve for many days. His family comes around to comfort him. Um, and then he's able to have more children, one of whom is a daughter. So first of all, it's, there's a few daughters, um, and women mentioned in the genealogies and chronicles, but, um, not many. So the fact that we get her name to begin with is significant, but then we learn that she is a builder of cities, multiple cities three different cities. Um, and then it just kind of goes on from there, which I think is so striking for just so many reasons, but it kind of it clearly is significant enough that it made it into the genealogy, but it's almost like part of me takes from that, that it's not quite as remarkable as we might think that there might have even been other women who were doing really significant things, but maybe, maybe they only built one city and she built three or um, they were, but to me, it's like, there's no real fanfare around it. It is just the reality that she built these cities, which is mentioned enough. Um, but I think 
there's something for us to uncover there and we'll continue to dig in there. But wanted to see if you had any initial reactions to that, Heather. Yeah, mostly just shock and awe. <laughs> um, yeah, this I hadn't noticed this at all. So I'm thankful for you, Jamie, of bringing it forth. And um, when we were prepping, I was like, Shira, isn't that the name of like an 80s cartoon hero? So it's spelled a little differently. So they they spell it like Shira with a like dash in the middle. Um, but I feel like they're taking it from this name of you. It sounds the same Shira, who is indeed a mighty woman <laughs> and a superhero in her own right. Yes. So um, we do know a little bit about these cities, even just by name, um, but also they are referenced continually in the scriptures. And so I think that in and of itself is a powerful um, indication of the legacy of this daughter in the story of God. And so we know that Lower and Upper Beth Haran are both on a hillside, which Hillsides are significant places, um, like a high place in that culture is very significant. Um, you would go up to a high place to worship. So the fact that she's able to build cities in these kind of spaces of worship are significant and also very strategic when it comes to battles, uh, which we'll actually see. So um, these are not just like in the middle of nowhere like, well, no one else wanted to build there anyhow, so I guess we'll let her build her cities there. Um, these are very strategic, significant places that she is building, um, and I think that is also really important to note. So yeah, then we I'm just I'm just want to hear more. <laughs> tell me everything, Jamie. I don't know anything, so I'm like, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> so. The third city, I love this so much because she names the city after herself. So yes. in the same way that we often see um, male legacies in um, ancient stories, men name cities after themselves. And she named the city, listen to She-Ra. That's such a flex. I, I love yes. this. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, so we're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to listen to her by digging a little deeper here. Um, and again, we actually do know about these cities because they are referenced in other places in scripture. And so um, the battle that you may have learned about in Sunday school, if you did that, um, just because it's very uh, majestic in its in the sound of it, um, it's recorded in Joshua and Joshua declares that the sun would stand still in the middle of this battle and it actually does um and there's hailstorms and uh it's quite the epic battle scene in scripture uh but it's basically occurring in the valley between these two cities and so um i think it's really possible that god has special interest in stopping this battle so that the cities that were created by his daughter would be preserved um and i think it it makes it very clear that god is the one like there's hail in the middle of nowhere um god is doing a very miraculous act to preserve these cities in that battle and um and then we find 
also that it was built on a really firm foundation that her cities lasted for centuries after her death. Um, and so 250 years after she built them, God protected them again in that battle. And we are told actually later in Second Chronicles that Solomon fortifies her cities. And But it's very clear that the cities are still there, even though there's been wars, there's been 250 years of just life even, um, not even counting the wars that have happened, um, but that there was such a firm foundation that it says that Solomon only added walls and towers and bars in Second Chronicles 8. Um, and so it's very clear that like the way that she built this city created a really firm foundation. And I just think it's such a beautiful, powerful legacy that we can point to these cities that are told about throughout scripture and know that a woman was a part of building them and that she was clearly not alone in that. Like, obviously people came around her, but that in and of itself to me is so powerful as we think about the people that had to have been involved in building these spaces and taking orders from a female city planner and um, just all the layers when you start to dig into what it would have taken to build a city. She is leading the way three different times. Um, and so I think it's so powerful to, to imagine that and to see this, again, the legacy that's created for, for generations. Yeah, that's so remarkable. Yeah, it's making me think of multiple things. One, it's making me think about the daughters of Zelophehad, where like, you know, she would be kind of in somewhat same. Yeah, that's what I was thinking around the same generation. Um, and just the ways that women were thinking outside the box at this point as they're entering the promised land and just imagining what can be possible and what God could do that I think is so lovely. And it, like you said, your reference to Job, I think it is a really interesting and beautiful picture of her family having gone through great loss. And especially when you think about losing your children at any time, but also in the ancient Near East, that it feels like you've lost your legacy and like you've lost your foundation, like you have you're not building on anything. And this is such a beautiful, literal picture of her building and rebuilding from a place of what felt like probably despair um, and, and doubt and, and fear of like, is our legacy over? Is our family line gone? Has God forsaken us? And not only does God give them descendants, but yet here's this remarkable <laughs> descendant mm -hmm. who's literally building cities in ways that are creating this foundation in the land uh, and dreaming about the legacy of their family and also just the legacy of God's people of entering with great power, the land of promise and saying, okay, God said he'd give it to us. Let's do this. Let's actually really take it as our possession. As the Lord has said, let's really invest. Let's actually make the most of this and really go all in. And I just think that's so powerful that this is a picture of a woman who's doing that, who's really stepping with boldness and hope and obedience to say the Lord has given us this land. The Lord has said it is our inheritance. So let's, let's make it so. Mm -hmm. That's so true because part of the reason I wanted to read those verses is because you see he was, he had a lot of children um, and they were 
all the sons that were mentioned. And so um, we see that, like you were saying, this legacy, but that the daughter gets to, in a very similar way to Zalofa had, um, the daughter gets to be a part of carrying that legacy in a way that maybe wouldn't have been um, the case um, with so many sons. But I think the way the Lord uses that is to elevate um, the daughter in such a significant way. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I think this story makes sense in this conversation is because you obviously have to steward a lot of wealth in order to build three cities. So whether that's her stewarding the wealth of like her entire tribe or her family, uh, we don't really know. We know obviously very little, but I think regardless, you don't build a city without number one having a lot of influence and leadership, which is beautiful. And also without having a lot of wealth and resources and the capacity to keep going to not just build it like in a mediocre way, but to build it in a way that is sustained for generations. And so to think about the um, wealth that would have been required for that, I think um, makes her such a great example of what it looks like to steward wealth um and to do that in a way that has other generations in mind Mm -hmm. yeah and it's making me think about a a phenomenon that will happen at different eras of history of any time there's just a major season of change that then people start rethinking what's possible and there have been eras where women did a lot more where people of color did a lot more Um, And unfortunately, how then the enemy will respond to that is often when there's great seasons of equality, then there will be a backlash of um, attempted inequality in response. And so it's often like, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I think this is a call for reimagining and inspiration to think about we're coming out of a pandemic, like we're rethinking a lot of things. And there's just a lot of stuff that we don't know what it's going to look like in this century and in this new era. And that can be really exciting. And it's a time to imagine things that maybe have never been before and, and possibilities of how new people could be empowered and raised up in different ways. So to me, this is just a, a like inspiring reminder of a season of great change can be really scary and it can also bring something really new and powerful and what does it look like for us as the people of God to seek that and welcome that that's so good Heather and I think that can really fly in the face because right now I think there's so much fear around very real fear around inflation and recession as we are talking about this um but to be able to say there's there's been a history of the way that God moves on the precipice of change and to be able to say even in this moment, in a season of change where there's a lot of very real fears around us to continue to say there's there's a way of being that is often led by the daughters of God who imagine something outside of the box and outside of what, what we've already seen possible. I think that's part of what's so powerful about your reference to Zulfahad's daughters, but also to Shira is like, we don't know that there were other female city builders um and yet she believed it was possible for her and I think for us to say um 
we we can continue to dream outside of what seems possible right now um even in the face of very real other narratives around us mm-hmm. yeah that's a good word for me <laughs> yeah well so continuing in this legacy of women who are leveraging their influence and wealth for expanding the kingdom of god so this will be a refresher if you've listened to our episodes on the the ways that Jesus connects with women in the gospels. But we want to come back to Luke 8 and verses 1 through 3 in particular verse 3 um where it's saying after this Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who've been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Shusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so it's just worth revisiting this, that first of all, Jesus has female disciples and that they are from different classes and socioeconomic statuses. Um, some would have been probably quite poor and coming out of significant marginalization. And we're seeing that some had significant wealth and political connections and that they're supporting the ministry of Jesus out of these means. Um, And that is no small thing that Jesus is encouraging that, that he's welcoming their support. He's empowering them and is gladly receiving (laughs) their um, financial wealth and empowerment and that he's collaborating with them. Yeah, I think um, there's so much here, but for me, a huge piece of it is the different socioeconomic statuses that we see here. And I think um, the way that we see these women traveling together and supporting Jesus and it it doesn't take note though at different points in scripture, Jesus does take note of like, who's giving what, um, but you just kind of get a picture that each person is giving out of their means, a generous portion of what they have. And, um, I just think it's so rare so often. And I would say this is maybe even more so the case with women than even like the greater population, but really, in the Western world, it's so easy for us to just stay within our socioeconomic status. And it actually takes great intentionality for you to have friends of varying degrees of wealth. Um, And so that model that we see here, a female friendship really bonded in the name of Jesus and following after him, um, I think is so powerful um, around these different places. Um, Because really, like, if we're being honest, Joanna with political power that we talked about last week um, or two weeks ago um, with someone who had been demonized. Like, listen, there were definitely women talking about that uh, friendship happening. And there were definitely people who were like whispering about Joanna, who has like gotten a little bit crazy ever since she started hanging out with Jesus. She's hanging out with other people and to imagine the fact that they these women are just like whatever we're we're part of following after Jesus and you know 
we don't often think about some of those small costs, but for sure, that was still a thing back in the first century that you would not have, maybe even more so because there were clear caste systems. Um, but to be with someone with political power and someone who had previously been demonized is so radical. And the fact that they are um, not, it's clear that they are not defined by that, but are defined by following Jesus. And that is very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, I think, one of the greatest gifts of the gospel and the church is that it is a great equalizer and it's meant to bring people into the same room who would never cross paths outside of the church, outside of our bond in Christ. And it can also be hard to find, <laughs> you know, like it, like you were saying, it's very easy specifically just because of housing of where we live, of neighborhoods that we tend to congregate around people who are proximate to us. And so if we're only living near people whose lifestyle very much uh, reflects our own, then we're going to have a pretty limited slice of the kind of people that we're friends with. And I do think that is meant to be the beauty of the church is that it brings people together who society would not bring together. And this is just such a lovely picture of that, of the ways that Jesus is elevating some women, humbling others, perhaps, uh, and uniting them all in this common purpose and this common vision and a common just meaning and meaning making that they're like, we get to be part of something that is really profound and special. And because we're part of it together, it gives us a different appreciation for one another as well. And they all feel appreciated by Jesus. I think that's also yeah. the beautiful part about it is like, they don't look down on each other because Jesus doesn't. Jesus is setting that tone of they're all meaningful. They're all important. They all have great value for what they bring and just for who they are. Uh, and that I think is such a, a beautiful tone and a beautiful example that we can be following as well. There's something to me about, and we have continued to talk about this, but there's so many people who aren't named in scripture. So when they are named, I think it's so powerful to think about the fact that the Lord made sure to preserve this aspect of their legacy and name them. And so the fact that we know the generosity of these women thousands of years later is just, that's a really beautiful thing to me. And I think about um, other women that we have seen along the way of uh, Lydia, who was an entrepreneur who began to host um, the early church in her home and just all of these people who were a part of uh, creating the legacy of the early church um, through their generosity. And I think there's just something so beautiful to me about the fact that God keeps track of that in a way that um, I don't think should like stir fear for us, but to really stir dignity that Jesus sees the way that um, these women were giving of themselves and out of the resources of their lives in very sacrificial ways and wants to take note of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have been inspired by them and just like by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in my own life, as I think about my financial stewardship and being part of the family of God and seeing my finances as 
part of something greater than just my own life and subsistence. Um, because I, as I've been married, my husband and I both before we got married and then, um, through the process of our like courtship and marriage, uh, both felt a call to not have biological children and largely because we felt a call into public ministry and what we would call a ministry of availability that like we can move and hold stuff at, in the evening at our home. And like, we, you just have a different lifestyle when you don't have small children or, you know, like kids in school. Um, and so because we didn't have and don't have children, we wanted to be very intentional to not make that just sort of self-indulgent or self-serving. Um, Jamie mentioned the acronym DINK, um, dual income, no kids, which somehow I had never heard that. Um, but that can be like, oh, let's just take elaborate vacations and like sort of do whatever we want to and be very inwardly focused. And we were very convicted from an early stage of this has to be for the kingdom. Like if we're not going to have biological children, then we want to extend ourselves in other areas of the family of God, of extending our finances, extending our time, our emotional energy to caring for others in different ways. And that's why I think it's so powerful about this legacy of these women that we're seeing is I'm sure some of them had families. I'm guessing some of them didn't as well. And so it is this really beautiful blend of people who are in different seasons of life, different walks of life, who are feeling this shared calling and shared purpose to be part of the family of God and be connected and see themselves and their resources as necessary and important for something beyond their own home. And so that's been a real motivator for me around financial stewardship is not just so I can buy another pair of sneakers, although I would love to do that also, <laughs> but so that we can be generous and are thinking about how is this translating into generosity for the body of Christ and for us, for young people um, that we are serving and connected to, but it could be for any age range of how do we see our finances as a resource to offer back to the church. That's so good. Um, I think about just the inspiration of thinking about opening up different aspects of your resources too. So thinking about um, the generosity of hospitality and um, the way that Lydia modeled that um, and also modeled, you know, actual finances. But I think there's so much to that of understanding God's resources in our lives through a really vast lens uh, that I think can be really inspirational. Um. We wanted to look at one other space of um, ways that women have been an inspiration. So we've we've kind of talked about these women who have stewarded their um, wealth in significant ways, though obviously reference the different socioeconomic status of the female disciples. But we wanted to look at Mark 12, 41 through 44, um, and see this story um, of the widow's might. So I'll uh, read that right from Mark. Jesus sat down opposite the place 
where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So we see that once again, Jesus makes sure that this widow's offering is noticed and later recorded. Um, and so I think, again, that's so beautiful to see that Jesus is taking note of these things in a way that really brings dignity to these women. Um, and of course, we know that a widow would not have had a lot in that time period. And so for him to help help them see that this was a picture of real lavish generosity, I think is also very beautiful to be like, I need to make sure you understand what's happening here. What we just witnessed is amazing. Um, and I think that's really fun to see um, that picture of Jesus, not just noticing and then recording it, but making sure that other people understood and had the eyes to see accurately what was happening in that offering. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. I think it's a story that's fairly familiar and a phrase that we'll use pretty regularly, at least in Christianity of the widow's might, um, which would be from like the King James <laughs> version, you know, like it's to the point where we we know it from kind of the old English, not even necessarily our modern translations, because it's been so ingrained in our Christian culture and for very good reason. But yeah, I do think it's so important to really pause and enter into what this meant for her i mean for us to think about uh you know the beginning of the month or the end of the month whenever you get your paycheck and it comes direct deposit and for you to then put your entire paycheck to (laughs) as like a donation to your church and not have anything left for the coming month i mean that's really that's what she's doing um and i'm not saying that we all need to go do that but I just think it's worth honoring her by actually imagining what would be the equivalent for me of giving everything that I have to live on and what kind of trust would that require? I think that is the beauty and that's at the heart of her offering is that she's trusting that God sees her, that God cares about her, that God is generous. And even when she has <laughs> relatively little, I'm just getting so emotional because this woman is a baller. I mean, she's truly just one of the greats um, that when she has little, she's trusting that God is still generous in her life. And that can be really difficult to believe when you are in a place of genuine scarcity, to feel that God is generous, that God is powerful. It can be very easy when we see little to believe little about God. And this is such an important picture of the goodness of God that she still experiences, even in the midst of real struggle and very real uh, need in her life, that she's like, I still believe God's good. I still believe God's generous. I believe God wants to care for me. And I'm giving, knowing that that's who God is. It's really a proclamation of who she knows God to be. And that is so inspiring. And I think should be convicting for us as well of do we believe that about God? Do we experience that in our lives? Do we allow 
circumstances in our lives to get to a point where we need to trust God <laughs> and we need to be hopeful? Or are we kind of hoarding or building up so that we are trusting in ourselves and trusting in our own resources and reserves and not giving room for God to have to prove himself um, and for God to prove himself trustworthy in those situations? So true. I'm thinking... I, it made me think about like, what did she see in Jesus as she was like, bring the offering. And I had to go up to remember, like, what was he teaching about when he was in the temple that day? And it's hilarious, actually. <laughs> as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. <laughs> Jesus is like, watch out for the like preachers and sneakers who are like making a show of things. They want to make it sound like they're holy because they have really lengthy prayers, but they devour widows' houses. And the widow sees that and says like, this is one who's worthy of everything I have. The one who like sees the marginalized and actually says like, these men will be punished. Like there is a God who is so full of justice that God can't help, but make clear that heart for justice. And so she sees that and she's like, this is, I, I give everything in response to this. And I think about um, just how beautiful that is that she was responding to this place of Jesus's heart for justice. Um, and I think um, offers like everything that she has as a result for the one who would see her and see the way that she has been treated. Um, and I, I think that's so beautiful. And, um, and I think there's so much to this that leads us into a conversation about like, what does this say about our current world in the United States? Um, and I think, like you were saying, Heather, to imagine the widow's might in our day, we would all say, even like the most faithful Christian, I think, if if one of our students came to us or like one of our young alumni was like, I got my first paycheck, I want to offer my first fruit and give my whole paycheck to the Lord. I'm like getting emotional imagining that. Um, I would be like, um you also probably have a security deposit to pay. So um, let's think about that. Did you really hear the Lord on that one? Like I would out of, and probably in some appropriate ways have a conversation of wisdom. But I think what the this widow teaches us is to look at Jesus is to hold both perfect wisdom and lavish generosity at the same time. And so as we think about like some of these really practical pieces that we're going to talk about, I think we do that holding those things together and to say the we the more we choose to steward what God has given us, the more we are able to share have greater resources to share and um and more to give away in even like the knowledge and resources that come to our lives. And so um I think for us to be thinking about that in terms of both um, the lavish generosity, but also just the wisdom of Jesus to, to offer us stewardship. So um, 
we are people who live in the West and so, um, and live in the United States. And so there's, there's real reason for gaps in women investing and generally not having financial knowledge and wisdom. A huge part of that is the narratives that we talked about earlier that are false narratives about women. Um, but we have to also acknowledge that there's a reason that women are maybe not as knowledgeable because women were not given the right to have a bank account until the 60s. And even then they could be denied that bank account. Um, and it wasn't until 1974 with the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that it became illegal to deny women credit cards, bank accounts, everything. So you think about, I mean, women were serving in the workforce long before that. And yet, you know, we, there would be widows, single women who were at a loss of what to do with those finances and could be legally turned away at any bank. Yeah, it's it feels preposter preposterous to us now, which it should. And yet, yeah, this is this is recent. I mean, my mom was born in 1957. So like she was born during an era where like it you could have been turned away and denied. And like her mom would definitely have been my grandmother's definitely would have been so it's really it is very recent that women have even had the opportunity to have financial resources and like that's on top of us living in the united states to begin with where compared to many other places in the world women have astonishing rights um and so even thinking about the rest of the world where there are places where women can't leave the house without a male relative with them and can't drive a car um, and so even in the West, we are incredibly privileged and like have incredible access to resources. And within that, there has still been tremendous obstacles placed in our way. Right. And even still, we, of course, most people know there is a wage gap. That does not mean it's really shrinking. The fact that we know about it now, um, but the average woman, um, even when you account for positions and different things like that, the average woman will get paid 82 cents to a dollar of a male counterpart. And that of course is, um, not including the larger gap for women of color, which is 60 cents to a dollar for a woman of color compared to, um, a white man. So that is just, not a joke like that's a very real obstacle for women um and yet what we know about um the generosity of women is that even though the income of women is lower retirement savings are usually less um because of things we can talk about later um life expectancy is longer but women give larger portions of their wealth to charity than men um both when they are responsible for um, a married household making decisions, but also um, when they are unmarried. So an American household that is headed by a single female gives 57% more than those by single males. Like that is shocking, honestly. Um, and so we see that despite 
real reasons um, and gaps in finances that women are known to be very generous. And so, um, and yet there's these cultural narratives about women that are really untrue about um, that women are spenders, that we spend frivolously and we just love to go shopping. Um, and that's actually not true. Like most of us can say, I'm, you know, maybe didn't need to purchase that at some point in our lives um, more often than others. And and yet over the course of a lifetime, women are not frivolous spenders. Um, there's a narrative about women investing that women are risk averse and therefore not good investors. And that's really not actually true. Women are risk aware. Um, and so it actually makes women very good investors. Um, and I just think there's this idea that women overall are bad with money, whatever that even means. Um, and really a huge part of that is just that women are often not socialized to talk about money. And I think that's part of why we have become so passionate about including that in conversations with women about what it looks like to live empowered in the world is to take seriously stewardship and to really see that as a huge part of what it looks like to um, be a responsible and powerful woman in the world is to steward our finances well. Exactly. And that it's not scripture that's saying um, only men should manage money. I mean, we're seeing these examples, and again, with Proverbs 31, especially, of women who are financial stewards, who are um, commended for the ways that they're managing their money. So it really is more of, I think, a a weapon of patriarchy that is suppressing women, keeping women powerless, keeping women dependent upon men in ways that the Bible doesn't call for. And yet it's very much steeped in like church culture as well to have these same patriarchal assumptions of your father does that your husband does that and as soon as you get married your husband will take care of that and all of all of these things and assuming oh women should just get married as soon as they can and then you'll be taken care of essentially and it's sort of a transference of your father did that and until your husband will do it for you and so there's just no guidance for women there's no empowerment for women and just sort of practical discipleship <laughs> of women around finances. And so really like we're just, a lot of us are then just figuring it out as we go, which can be okay, you know, and we can do it, but it'd be great <laughs> if we had support <laughs> from the church and it was normalized in perhaps in women's ministry or youth ministry that we're teaching women and girls how to just understand financial elements of, of your, of your life, of what, what is a good interest rate on a credit card? What kind of interest rate should you have when you buy a car? What's a good down payment to have on a car? What's a good down payment to have for a house? You know, all of these things where we can easily get taken advantage of if we don't have any insight or knowledge of what's normal, what's fair, what should I be asking for? Uh, and so when we are just on our own, then we're often um, at a disadvantage because we don't have the same knowledge and salespeople know that. And so they will take advantage of us. Yeah, I think 
it's so important that you brought that up because if anyone should be more knowledgeable, it should be women because um, we often are in more vulnerable places, like trying to negotiate for a car or a home or really large purchases in general, I think. Um, And yet so often we are not taught those things. Um, You and I were talking before about how often um, resources about finances are written from a white male perspective. Um, We could think of like Susie Orman and um, Tori Dunlap is a more modern financial feminist. Um, But none of those are really steeped in scripture. And so to think about like, what are, what story are we telling in the American church that, um, and honestly, I can't think of, I I mean, I'm probably going to say this stronger than I mean it, but I can think of very few women that I've heard preach about money because, um, and I don't think that's necessarily the fault of a woman, uh, to be clear. I think most people wouldn't be able to receive a message about money from a woman in the pulpit. Um, so it's probably wise to not have a woman preach on that on some level. Um, or she is wise to not choose that. Um, but I think I I can't think of many places. I was even thinking about um how often in a church that I was a part of, there was um all the ushers tended to be like male, uh, just by nature of kind of old school idea of like what an usher did. Um, and therefore the money was like in the front and back of the church in that, uh, church. And so you brought your offering to the front or the back and the man always came to the front or the back to receive the offering. And I just was thinking more about that today of like, what a wild picture that like young women are growing up with, with this picture of like, of course, it's the men who are bringing the money, um, you know, up to be counted later, often by women uh, who are the volunteers, to be clear. Um, but I think there's so much in the church that we just continue this narrative, almost more so than the culture around us. Um, and we've talked a lot about that as like the perpetual infantilization of women that we kind of desire for women to stay young and vulnerable in some ways in the church. And that's not biblical at all. And so um, I think the reason we are quick to call that out is because we have to bring those things into the light to begin to see how uh, destructive the narrative really is around it so that we can begin to live into the light and the freedom that Jesus wants to bring to our finances and to the narratives around it. Yeah, this is, hear me out because it's going to sound like for a second, I'm just saying like women should get divorced anytime. Um, But the ways that we socialize married couples in the church to engage with money, which is men should do it all and women shouldn't do any is functionally recreating biblical era divorce laws where women can never initiate a divorce because you have nowhere to go. You have Mm -hmm. no resources. You have no credit score. Nothing is in your name. You don't have any access to anything. Um, You don't know how to do those things. And so if you are in a bad situation that would 
be abusive, um, you might have, you might feel like you're forced to stay because you can't go anywhere else. You feel you have no recourse. Um, and so I think there can be an extreme answer to that where husbands and wives could like keep all of their resources completely separate. I don't think that's the answer. That's not what I would be advocating because there is something to be said of the more that you have your resources separate, the easier it is to leave one another for not like good reasons for not good enough reasons. Um, and so there's something about combining your lives that does really communicate your commitment to one another. And so that's very good. Um, and within that, I just think there's wisdom for women and wives to have just some resources to be make sure a few things are in your name for your credit score and things like that, mostly because the future is uncertain. And especially if you have children and Lord forbid, if something would happen to your husband and then you have to take care of them. And if you don't know how to do anything, if nothing is in your name, if you're starting from scratch, that's putting you and your children at risk. And so it's not that, oh, modern independent women should just be able to leave at the drop of a hat if we get bored or something like that. Like, that's not at all what we're commending. We're really just saying, like, there's just wisdom in foresight in an uncertain world of making sure that you can be cared for beyond just a life insurance policy of your husband's. <laughs> um, that, like, especially if something would happen when you and your children are still younger, that's a lot of years to have to care for them and figure that out um, and and get through life. And so there's just a lot of ways where we're not serving women and children well by keeping them financially ignorant and completely dependent on husbands. And we're not caring for the most vulnerable if if something were to go wrong. And so there just really is value in wisdom <laughs> and like hey let's have some tools let's have um a credit score that is helpful let's have access to you know funding and just information that is helpful so that you can be independent and thoughtful and engaged with your family and with the body of Christ and with your life and your community and have the resources to do that it's so true i think um because again the more we kind of just surrender to that idea of like, well, whatever it, this person might know, my husband might know more about finances than I do. Um, and just leave it at that. The more we are just perpetuating a particular narrative and, um, and almost choosing that, uh, level of ignorance that I understand for some people is like, I didn't, even fully realize I was doing it. Um, so I understand how we get there, but, um, I just think so often women end up in a very vulnerable position as a result. And so we really want to encourage people to, um, take an opportunity to look up different tools. Um, we found the statistic today that 86% of all financial advisors are men, 98% of dollars invested in mutual funds are managed by men. Like we have a lot of growth to do. And so if you are a woman in finance, um, then I know if you are a woman in finance, you will love that. I just said it like that. Um, 
That is how the professionals say it. Um, (laughs) I learned that from a woman in finance. Um, So, uh, but I think if you are a woman who enjoys this, um, really think about what it looks like for you to steward your career well and to be a forerunner. I mean, we still are just continuing to pave a path that was, was not possible, like, not that long ago. Um, and so, but I think with that, knowing that we don't share those statistics to say like, see women are bad with money. Um, but to say there's a real reason for us to think about what it looks like to, um, have knowledge and wisdom about this. And, um, and again, if you look up statistics, women are significantly better investors because of the awareness of risk. And so even when I think about myself compared to um, a male friend who I often talk to about stocks, um, he'll dive in right away. And I'm like, who owns this company? Let me, let me trace the the money a little bit more. Um, And so, you know, he'll often joke with me about that. But at the end of the day, there are some that I have been like, I got to get out of this sooner. Um, I can't keep riding this wave. And um, and it actually has saved me from a lot of big drops. And so um, when I've, I've seen this for myself, and I think there's something really powerful about just choosing to start, even if you're starting small. And so um, there's really this is kind of a fun and nerdy story about myself. But um, back in the day, you would read stocks in the newspaper. Um, <laughs> you did not pull up your stock app. Um, and so I did a project at one point in like a nerdy math class I was in where I had to trace the, basically have fake money in the stock market. And I thought it was so fun. I kept tracing those like beyond the class. Um, and so I remember like looking in the newspaper with my dad when I was like younger, um, at the stock market and trying to like figure out what some things meant. And I definitely didn't know what everything meant, but for me, that is a radically different experience than a lot of young girls get to experience. And so I think about what it would be like if more young girls and even like if, if you are really afraid of investing like that, basically do that little project that I had as a young girl um, and start tracing some stocks that you would be interested in or get a financial advisor. Um, but I think there's there's ways for us to say, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to ask um, maybe like a Lydia in my life uh, for some help and help me think about these things along the way Mm -hmm. also youtube and tiktok can be very informative places if you find some good people to follow you can learn a lot um but yeah i think to echo that jamie i just really stumbled into it into like some measure of financial management when i was 23 because another older single woman introduced me to her financial manager and was like Hey, you should just meet with him. He can help you invest. I had no idea what was what it was. <laughs> um, and at the time, I this is shocking. I was making fourteen thousand dollars a year because I was working in residence life, and so I had housing provided, which was sort of part of the package. But 
I was making 14 grand um, annually <laughs> in like 2006. So not like in 1983, <laughs> 2006, the year of our Lord, 2006. Um, so I did not have a lot, but thankfully this other friend who just like put me in touch with somebody and it was truly the mercy of God. I started investing $50 a month in a Roth IRA. And I said yes to the 403B um, at my my place of employment, which I was then able to roll over into my 401k a few years later <laughs> at my second employer. Um, but I had no idea what I was doing. And I just was really responsive to the ways that the Lord was very gracious and merciful to me to give me opportunities I didn't even fully understand at the time. And again, another older woman, not a lot older, a little bit older, um, give, giving me some tips and honestly, unsolicited advice that was super helpful for me. And I'm just so thankful to the Lord. And I really feel like that was an affirmation in my life, at least that God wanted me to have financial security. God didn't want me to just wait indefinitely for a husband that may or may not come. Cause I think that's a trap that young women can fall into as well is like, I'll learn about it. I'll enroll in that when I get married. And that may or may not happen, or certainly not on the timeline that you assume it will. And your best asset in uh, financial investment is time, is compounding interest over time. So the sooner you can start, the better. So I really think it is a reminder for young women to not wait until some fictional hoped for stage in your life and like once I get here then I'll learn about it then I'll start then I'll have I'll be ready in this way start now and again you may not feel totally ready but jump in and trust that the Lord wants you to have financial security the Lord will give you what you need to do that and the Lord wants you to be an active agent in the kingdom of God and will raise you up and give you the resources to be able to steward them so good I love how you said that it was unsolicited advice. And I think that's a really hard line, especially for women to walk. I think we often are like, I will enter that space when I'm invited. Um, but I think if we are to be women and men who aren't going to gatekeep financial knowledge, I think sometimes that includes like, hey, I heard you talk about this and I really would like to share some things that could maybe help break some fear or help um, bring some understanding to those places and out of a heart to see the generations, um, younger than us have more knowledge and understanding about it. And so I really love that piece of that story that you, I mean, you probably thought like, whatever, I, I don't make anything. What am I going to do with what I have? And yet she was like, I, I know what it is to make nothing and to see, uh, that multiply, um, even, even still. And so I think that's so powerful and such a reminder to us that even those of us who may have experiences of generational patterns that are not helpful about finances, um, we get to be a part of the family of God and learn from those outside of our own experience. And so, um, if we are that woman who knows a little bit more than, uh, the woman younger than us to be offering that to others, but to also say, I need some help and I don't understand this. And um, to just be women who are 
bold and courageous to say, I want to take steps towards becoming a better financial steward. Um, and, and to say, I, I'm not going to give into the shame that would try to tell me that I'm dumb for not knowing this sooner. Um, or I, I should have known this. I should have learned this. And just to say, you know what? I don't know this period. And so I'm going to figure out how to learn it and be courageous to ask some questions and look up some resources. And I think that is the first step that is very courageous. Um, and I, I do just want to say, you know, when we think about, I'm honestly proud as a, an unmarried, uh, woman who is a single, um, household to be a part of that statistic that women give 50% more than those of single males. But I hope that there are, uh, maybe a young man that falls into that category that's listening to this that would kind of feel a spark listening to that to say, I want to be an inspiration um, to the people who are younger than me. And I, maybe if you are that young man who doesn't know um, as much to find a Lydia in your life or a Joanna in your life who is generous and to say, I want to learn from a woman like that about what it looks like to be a good steward. Yeah, I love that. Right. I'm just, this is an invitation to men to <laughs> learn from women in this area. I think that partly because this is somewhat socialization, but I think also the way that we genuinely are wired. I think women are wired to be relational, to be communal, to be collaborative. And as a result, I think that's what makes us very mindful of our community and the people in our lives. And I think that's what makes us really primed for really lovely interdependence with God and the Holy Spirit. And I think the widow is such a beautiful example of that, of she knows what it is to need other people and to have to depend on God. And women, for better or worse, a lot of it because of negative things, we're used to being dependent. And so let's actually use that in a good way to be dependent on God <laughs> and the the inspiration and provision of the Holy Spirit and use that to sort of defy the enemy and the ways that the enemy would try to keep us disempowered and um, without resources and actually ask the Lord to use our dependence on God to make us very capable uh, and to make us rich in some way, you know, like rich in resources, in opportunities, in generosity, so that we can really bless the people of God with the goodness of God. Uh, and so this is, I hope, a helpful reminder for all of us that God's intention is not for women to be financially illiterate or to be helpless and dependent on other people, and especially perhaps on men only. Uh, but God's desire is for his daughters to be thoughtful, to have resources. And because God knows we will steward them and we will offer them back to us, God wants to give them to us. And so we hope this is an encouragement for you to not limit yourself just based on perhaps the way you've been raised or been taught or just what you've observed in society, but to say yes to the generosity of God and the goodness that God wants to bestow on the people of God and to say yes to the ways that you could be part of that. We're so thankful that you've been digging in with us 
please do subscribe to the podcast so you'll get notifications about new episodes. We would love to connect with you on social media. You can follow us at Excavate Podcast. And we do want to say that we have a very exciting live recording event coming up February 18th in Pittsburgh at the Jubilee Conference. That will be in the afternoon on Saturday. You can get a day pass to the conference if you would like to join us. So if you'll be in or around Pittsburgh, February 18th, we would love for you to come join us for our live podcast recording. We will be interviewing Dr. Carmen Imes, and we are just very excited for that episode. Thank you again for digging in with us. 